this morning, I want to start us off with a question, all right? And our question is this. Have you ever had something in your life that you want to get rid of but couldn't? Uh, let, let me clarify what I mean. I'm not talking about uh, something that has sentimental value that you've thought about getting rid of uh, a while ago, um, but you just can't bring yourself to do it. I'm talking about something that you genuinely want to get rid of and have tried to, but somehow it shows back up in your life. Uh, Maybe it's that super impractical and ugly gift that someone got you uh, years ago that you're you're never going to use, and you thought you got rid of it, but every time you go through the boxes, somehow it shows back up. Or maybe it's that uh, embarrassing picture of you from middle school when you're on vacation, and it seems like there's 10 million copies of it, so no matter how many times you throw it away or burn it or cut it up, uh, another one appears. Or maybe there's that, that person that you've tried to remove from your life, but it seems like every corner you turn, there they are. There they are. Well, we all may have experienced something like this, but if not, there is something that I know each one of us would love to have eradicated from our lives. I know this because each of us has experienced this because it's a universal human experience, and that is the experience of shame. I bet if I asked you of a time when you felt intense shame, you could instantly remember an event that's been seared into your mind. It brings a heaviness to your heart and to your soul. And even if it was years ago, maybe even decades, you remember it like it was yesterday. So today, we're going to define shame as being exposed and feeling diminished by that exposure. And though we often talk about them together, guilt and shame uh, are different. Guilt is about what I've done, whereas shame is about who I am. So guilt says, I've done bad, where shame says, I am bad. I am bad. When we experience shame, we'll often tell ourselves things like, You're worthless. You're a piece of trash. You'll never be good enough. No one could ever love you. You are disgusting. And many variations of of these kind of things. And at times, this this shame seems unshakable. It's that thing that we wish we could get rid of, but we can't. No matter what we do, it seems to show back up in our lives. And because of this, I want to address the problem of shame. We're going to go back to the very beginning and look at this issue in Genesis chapter 3. And I would like to propose that an analysis of the problem of shame found in Genesis 3 will show us that it can only be dealt with on God's terms. So we will start on Genesis 2.25 and we'll read through 3.13 and then we'll skip to verses 20 and 21. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of its eyes, or when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Skip to verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So as we examine this passage, we can see the cause of shame in 225 through 36, the effect of shame. In verses 7 through 13, and the solution to shame, in verses 20 through 21. The cause of shame, the effect of shame, the solution to shame. So let's turn now to the cause of shame. And including verse 25 was, is, is essential to our discussion because it tells us about the state humans were in prior to the fall. We're given two descriptors, one physical and the other spiritual. Now the physical descriptor is that of nakedness. They were literally naked before one another. Their physical bodies were exposed to one another. However, this physical nakedness actually symbolized something much deeper than the simple fact that there, was, there were no barriers between the two human beings physically. This actually connects to the spiritual description of them being unashamed before one another. There was no shame because there was no fear of evil exploiting the relationship and exposing the other. So we can see that this physical description and the spiritual description of being ashamed are intimately connected. And together, they symbolize innocence. Innocence. The man and the woman were innocent before one another and before God. As some of you know, uh, Danielle's sister had twin girls back in December, and uh, they're getting big fast, very fast. And we were actually able to see the girls during their first, uh, their first week of living. And I uh, achieved two huge milestones that week. The first was uh, I became an uncle. They're my first uh, nieces. Uh, the second, and arguably 
the bigger and more, uh, I guess one I could be more proud of, is that I changed my first diaper that week. And then I changed my second, and then my third, and on and on and on. Many diapers. And uh, now, now, when you change a baby, and obviously I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but in order to change a baby's diaper, you have to get them naked. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but the point I'm trying to make is this, is that when a baby is naked before someone else, they don't bat an eye. They aren't phased. Sure, they may start screaming and crying because they're cold or because someone, you know, laid them down. They're not being held. But the reality is, is they're not worried about the fact that they're in a position of vulnerability before someone else by lying bare before them. They're innocent they don't try to cover themselves up. And so uh, this weekend we got to see our nieces again. And uh, as my nieces lay there waiting for their diaper to be changed, uh, they weren't worried about being exposed. And they weren't even aware of the possibility of exposure. They were oblivious to the danger of evil in this world. And in fact, babies don't even have a concept of evil. And this is a fitting illustration based on the fact that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14:20 in regards to evil, be infants. Be infants. So in the same way the man and the woman were unaware of and unashamed of the fact that they were naked before one another. They were oblivious to the existence of evil and didn't know the dangers of it, just like babies. They had yet to be corrupted. So Their nakedness was symbolic of their innocence. And this is essential for our understanding of what follows in the story because what nakedness symbolizes gets completely flipped on its head. So as we move into chapter 3, it records the dialogue between the man, or the woman and the serpent. The serpent is described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. And using this word was very intentional by the author. But it's hard for us to see the connection that he's making because there's a wordplay that gets lost in translation. So the Hebrew word for naked is a rome. And the Hebrew word for crafty is a room. So what does this mean? Well, as we move into the section of the narrative, the author is making a connection between the nakedness of the humans and the craftiness of the serpent. And it's almost like a warning signal that the one is going to affect the other. And most of us, we know the story well. The serpent, who's identified as Satan in Revelation, comes and begins to question what God has commanded. He raises doubt about God's word to get the woman engaged with conversation with him. Then he lies and explicitly denies what God said. And also the integrity of God's character is called into question. He's accused of holding out on them. And in verse 5, the serpent says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And once that appeal was given, it was game over. Now up to this point, the story's been drawn out by the conversation between the woman and the serpent. But then once the temptation is completed, 
verse 6, it takes on really rapid pace. There's five verbs used in quick succession. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. Boom, 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 boom. Done. Just like that. And here, we see the ultimate cause of shame. is sin. Now, this may seem intuitive, but when I say sin, I'm not talking about sins like the specific acts we commit that are wrong. I'm talking about sin with a capital S. Now, obviously, specific acts that we do that are wrong can bring shame to us, like we'll see in this passage. However, there are things that happen in life that bring shame that aren't because we've necessarily sinned. For example, uh, have you ever been somewhere around people and somehow you get hurt? You get hurt around people. Uh, Whether you trip and fall, you cut yourself, or a stray basketball flying through the air happens to be at the same place in the universe as your head at the same time. Uh, Danielle has had several cosmic encounters with flying sports balls throughout her life, so she tends to opt out of playing sports during a youth group. But anyways, when this happens, you're clearly hurt to those around you, so they aren't laughing at you or shaming you in any way. But regardless of that, what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth. I'm okay, I'm okay, right? I'm okay, I'm fine. When in reality, you know you're not. You're hurting, but you're afraid that your imperfection, your flaws, will be exposed for all to see. You'll be seen as weak. You did nothing morally wrong, and neither did anyone else, but because of the presence of sin in this world, you feel shame. My dad called me the other day, and uh, just see how I was doing. I said I was working on my sermon. He said, well, what are you preaching on? I said, shame. He said, ooh, that's a tough one. And immediately a story came to mind for him. So he told me the story, and I said, can I share this during the sermon? So I got his, I got his go-ahead on this. But when he was about 12 years old, uh, he was with his, uh, his buddy. I believe his name was Joe. Maybe not. And uh, him and his buddy were uh, with my dad's mom at the grocery store. And, you know, she's uh, in one aisle doing her thing. Him and his buddy are messing around in another aisle. And uh, so then he's trying to find his mom. So then he comes on the corner. He sees his mom. And uh, he comes up behind her, gives her a big hug, and kisses her on the cheek. Here's a problem. That wasn't mom. My dad's friend said, did you apologize? He said, no, I ran. <laughs> Immediately, he realized his mistake, and he felt fear. He felt shame. Oh, no, what have I done? And he ran. And yet, he didn't intentionally hurt anyone, and nor did anyone hurt him. Yet, the presence of sin in this universe, we experience shame in all sorts of different ways. And so, we see that this, this shame is present everywhere, everywhere. So we see that we experience shame when we maybe commit wrong acts, just accidents happen in general, but another way we experience shame is when evil is done to us. Again, this is a universal human experience. Somewhere along the line, someone has or will sin against us in a way that brings shame upon us. We all can think of times we experience the shame of someone sinning against us. This happens at varying levels. 
It could be that time you were in uh, elementary school and those who you thought were your friends intentionally left you out. It could be in middle school when you got chewed out by the teacher in front of the class. And it could have been this past week. Your boss criticized you in front of your coworkers or clients and it made you feel like an idiot. And a huge cause of shame in many of us is abuse. And besides the fact that abuse of any kind is a violation of the dignity of the other person as an image bearer of God, uh, one of the most sinister things about abuse is that it leaves the one abused feeling as though it was their fault. The shame of the abuser is transferred over and multiplied on the one abused. The shame lingers for years, even decades, if never addressed. So we've seen that shame can come a result as our, of our own sins, as was in the case of the man and woman, and as a result of the sins of others against us. But ultimately, the ultimate cause of shame is sin, with a capital S. If it were not for sin entering the world, we would not know shame, that sense of being exposed and feeling diminished by that exposure. So as we know, every cause has an effect. And now that we know from verses 2, 25 through 3, 6, that sin is the cause of shame, let's see the effect of shame in verses 7 through 13. Starting with verse 7, we see the immediate effect that shame had on humanity. It's ironic because what the serpent promised in verse 5 came true. Their eyes were opened. However, the way in which they were opened was not what the serpent promised. Their eyes were opened to the fact that they were exposed. They knew that they were naked. It's important to understand that this wasn't just a statement about their physical state, again, They were definitely physically bare before themselves and one another, but their eyes were also open to the fact that they were spiritually naked. They could see what they just did was wrong. Their flaws were evident to themselves. This was their self-exposure. In order to cover up their exposure to each other, the solution was to sew some fig leaves together and made uh, loincloths out of them. And is this not our first response to shame too, though? When our sins, our imperfections, our flaws, or failures become apparent, we try to cover ourselves so that others can't see them and so that we can feel better about ourselves. And this can be done, done in any number of ways. Uh, we put on the, grid, good, the good Christian face and act like we have it all together and everything is fine. We help everyone else with their problems so that they don't see our problems. Now, this is, uh, this is hard. This is very hard because maybe we think even getting higher up the ladder in our business or any position that we achieve can can help us to deal with this sense of inadequacy. And all of us who've chosen these routes, it's hard. And we say, if only. If only our solutions worked. And here's the thing about all these solutions to our shame. They don't go deep enough. 
We're trying to outwardly cover ourselves with positions, titles, achievements, skills, and appearances that don't deal with the inner problem of shame. Adam and Eve's solution of fig leaf clothing didn't go deep enough either. The problem is that their shame went beyond physical nakedness. Their hearts were laid bare before themselves and each other, and they were repulsed by what they saw. They caused a break in their relationship with one another, which is what their clothing symbolized. Whereas before they were, they were naked and had nothing physically, relationally, or spiritually between them, now they wore clothing that represented not only their physical separation from one another, but also their relational and spiritual separation. But we all know that as painful as broken relationships with others are, there's a far greater separation that occurs. And we see this play out in verse 8. Upon hearing God approaching them in the garden, it says, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the verb form that's used here, it emphasizes that the one doing the action does it to themselves. So they aren't hidden by someone. They are the ones hiding themselves. They hide themselves from God. And he didn't chase them off into hiding like some oppressive, angry God that a lot of the gods reviewed as that day. No, the shame caused them to hide themselves. They hid themselves from one another, and now they're hiding themselves from God because they're afraid of being exposed to Him. And this is the ultimate effect of shame. Separation. Separation from our relationships with God and others. And in fact, this is the universal pattern of sin. Sin, shame, secrecy, separation. When sin isn't dealt with, it leads to shame. And shame causes us to move into secrecy because we can't let others see and know our imperfections. And it's only natural that secrecy leads to separation because it's impossible to have any depth of relationship when there are secrets. Adam and Eve modeled this pattern perfectly. They sinned, which led to a sense of shame. Then they tried keeping their sin and shame a secret from God, which led them to, led them to separate themselves by hiding in the trees. And again, do we not all experience the same thing? When we feel, when we feel exposed, whether by our own sins, the sins of others, or because of the existence of sin in general, we just want to disappear. We just want to slowly back away into the nearest bushes and act like we don't exist. Whatever we can do to get the spotlight off of our deficiencies. And I love the nuance that the ESV brings out in verse 8. In some translations, they, they just say that they hid themselves from God, which is accurate. But it says specifically that they hid themselves from his presence. The word could also be translated as face. They hid themselves from his face. And Adam and Eve withdrew and hid themselves from God's face. And in Christian circles, we'll, we talk about uh, experiencing the presence of God or seeking God's face. We want to seek his face. Well, the reality is, is that with shame, 
we do the exact opposite. We run away. We run away from his face. And why do we run away from God's face? His eyes. What do I mean? Exposure. The eyes see our flaws, see our sin, see our deficiency. And so we must get away from the eyes so we flee from God's face. We can't bear the fact that we'll be seen and known by a holy God. Being exposed to others is bad enough, but God laying his eyes on our sin, our shame, our imperfections is all but unbearable. And even when we consider the way God approached Adam and Eve, we didn't, he didn't come in condemnation, condemnation wagging his finger, but he came with a question. Where are you? This was a gracious call to confession and repentance by God. The love of God was being offered in the form of forgiveness. Now, as some of you may know, I have an older brother named Tyler. And he currently lives in Groton, Connecticut, where he serves with the United States Navy as the uh, nuclear engineer. And a couple Christmases ago, uh, he was asking me what I wanted as a gift, and I gave the response I've always given my parents throughout the years. Uh, I don't know. Right? It's like I come up with ideas in July, but then by Christmas time, I've forgotten about them. Uh, but then, then I, I got an idea for a very practical gift that I knew I would use. A rain jacket. I knew that no matter where I lived in the U.S., I would need one. So he, he got me a really nice Nike rain jacket. And again, as you know, a good rain jacket keeps you dry because it repels the water that falls on you. It hits you and just runs off. So then you can walk outside from point A to point B and stay dry. And I've heard shame described this way. Shame is like a rain jacket over the soul that repels the very love of God that would establish us as his beloved. Shame acts like a rain jacket over our souls where the love of God just runs off like water runs off a rain jacket. As he moves towards us in love, offering his gracious forgiveness and expressing his affections for us, our shame repels the very thing that would relieve us of our shame. His love and grace run off like the, runner, like the water. So now that God has approached Adam and Eve and given them the opportunity to come confess and repent, the man tells God he was afraid because he was naked, so he hid. And this is where we see the symbolism of nakedness completely turned on its head. What was once a symbol of innocence had now become a symbol of shame. And then this theme is actually carried on all throughout the rest of Scripture. Over, over and over again, especially in the prophets, the imagery of nakedness is used to describe the shame that will come as a result of God's judgment, whether against his own people, Israel, or the surrounding nations. Now, obviously, the Lord wasn't ignorant of all that had just 
gone on with Adam and Eve and the serpent, but he was giving them a chance to come clean. So when Adam says that they were afraid because they were naked, God naturally asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response is another attempt to hide his exposure. Instead of just saying, yes, I did. He actually blames God. He blames God, the audacity. He blames God for giving Eve to him and then blames Eve for giving him the fruit. And actually, in, in Hebrew, the first phrase is, is emphasized with each of the following phrases decreasing in emphasis. So the three, three phrases that Adam said could be emphasized like this. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And I ate. He de-emphasizes his role in the act of rebellion, confessing with not much more than a whisper. And even in his confession, he's, he hides behind blame. And this is the classic pattern for undealt with shame. When we can't shake that sense of inadequacy or worthlessness, it turns into contempt for others. Now, one of the best ways to keep ourselves from being exposed to others is to be angry. Because Nobody likes to be around an angry person. So if we can keep people at bay with our anger, they won't be able to get into our hearts and see what's there. But you can be sure, those of us who struggle with this, underneath a person's anger is a scared and hurting image bearer of God who's afraid to let people see who they really are. Now Eve, she does the same thing. She blames the serpent before fessing up. And we're, we're not going to look at the punishment and consequences that God pronounces. Uh, but it's important to note that God curses the serpent in the ground, but he does not curse mankind. He doesn't curse the man and the woman. And although he doesn't curse humanity, the effects of their sin and shame are severe. There is now separation in the relationships between humans and their relationship with God. And this is the ultimate effect of shame, separation. So we've now seen the cause and effect of shame, but now we need a solution. Let's turn to verses 20 and 21 to see the solution to not only the effect of shame, but also the cause. Right after the Lord had pronounced his judgments, against the serpent, the woman, and the man, he establishes his new order of grace. Adam gives a name to the woman. He names her Eve, which sounds like the Hebrew word for living, and reflected the fact that she would be the mother from whom everyone else descended. And this was an exciting prospect in light of the fact that uh, God just said that they were going to die. They were going to return to dust and that they just messed up the whole order of the cosmos. But there was grace. However, there's still a problem. 
the man and the woman still had their fig, fig leaf clothing on. Their shame still hadn't been dealt with. Their feeble, feeble efforts to cover their naked bodies were still evident. God provided the solution. His solution to their sin and shame. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God used animal skins to cover them. But God didn't just create a pair of animal skins out of nothing. I mean, he could have done that. But what needed to happen? This tells us the ultimate solution to shame. And that is sacrifice. Sacrifice. God had to make a sacrifice in order to provide the means to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. And this is the first sacrifice. It tells us two things. First, dealing with shame is costly. Adam and Eve thought they could just snatch some branches and some leaves from a tree that would eventually grow those, those branches and leaves back the next year and then cover their body. In a sense, they trivialized what they had done. They would have never thought to do what God did. God deprived an animal of its life in order to relieve the man and the woman of their shame. Pain had to occur. Blood had to be spilled. There's no easy, cheap process by which the conscience of mankind can be relieved and restored. God needed to intervene. His solution went deep enough and showed the severity of what the man and the woman had done. And it would cost much for them to experience relief from the shame. The second thing that we see in this first sacrifice is the pattern for dealing with shame. This first sacrifice by God himself sets up the pattern for his people Israel when, they, when they're given the law. So throughout the entire Old Testament we see that it's necessary for animal sacrifices to occur in order to deal with sin and shame, the sin and shame of the people. Over and over again, for centuries and centuries, animals being slaughtered. God showed them this pattern so they could address their sin and shame. Yet, the fact that they continually had to make these sacrifices over and over again tells us that this wasn't enough to solve the problem. It wasn't enough. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What? What do you mean? This is what you told us to do. 
You mean these animal sacrifices aren't enough? No. No. But God has provided a sacrifice good enough for all. Just a few verses later, the writer of Hebrews says this, Every priest stands daily at this service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The first sacrifice made by God himself in all of the sacrifices that followed throughout the history of Israel were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The first sacrifice was made by God himself. The final sacrifice was God himself. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest and the sacrifice. He offered the sacrifice. He offered himself as the final sacrifice to deal with sin. Now you may be asking or thinking, that's amazing. God has taken away all our sin in the sacrifice of Christ. But you've been talking about shame this whole time. What about that? Fear not. The cross of Christ dealt with our shame too. Hebrews 12, one through two says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus took on our shame on the cross. As he hung on the cross, it says that the Roman soldiers cast lots for his clothing. So if his clothing was on the ground, that means that the Son of God, he hung naked on the cross to take our shame. He bore our shame. What was once a symbol of innocence, God himself exposed himself to the whole world to be shamed for our sake. Thank you, Jesus. He did this to bridge the gap between God and man. So now, we have seen God's solution to shame. Therefore, now that we've analyzed the problem of shame in Genesis 3, let us deal with shame on God's terms. We saw that the cause of shame is sin. The effect of shame is separation. And the solution to shame 
is sacrifice. I urge you to put off your futile ways of dealing with shame. Our natural response is to run away from God and others and hide. We must be seen and known by God and others, flaws and all. It is only when we step into the light and allow our shame to be exposed, then we'll be able to experience the relief from that shame that God provided in Christ. He's identified with us in our experience of shame by hanging naked on the cross. Now, we must identify with him in his crucifixion by allowing our soul to lie naked before God and others. So find a trustworthy friend with whom you can bring those hidden corners of your soul to the light and experience freedom and fullness in Christ that comes when you're fully known and fully loved. As David says in Psalm 25, Indeed, none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame.